from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Red Grammer. Red is a professional musician with a focus on family music. He's released award-winning CDs such as his classic recording, Teaching Peace. Red's website is redgrammer.com. I started the interview by asking Red where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in uh, Little Silver, New Jersey, which is kind of uh, the north part of the Jersey Shore. It was a great, great place to grow up. It was about an hour outside of New York City, very family-oriented. I lived, grew up about half a block away from the little Methodist church that I went to as a kid. Yeah, it was a sweet place to grow up. What were your interests growing up? Well, until about fourth grade, I was just like any other little kid, just doing whatever was in front of them, playing with cars and the dirt outside. <laughs> um, but in fourth grade, the uh, school where I went to offered instrumental lessons, so I said, I'm going to take the drums, and then they said, do you want to be in the chorus, in the fourth grade chorus? I said, sure. And then at, at the at the church, they had a junior choir, and I joined that, and suddenly music was all around me. So in addition to staying after school and playing football with the kids after school at the playground, uh, I also would go home and sing along to records. Slowly as I put my drum set together, I would play along to Beatles albums, and before long we had a little, a little band that, performed at all the local dances, and all up to high school, we were the go-to band for uh, for dances and things. And yeah, I also was, you know, on the high school soccer team, And but music was a big part of what I was doing. I wrote my first song in sixth grade, first guitar. You know, I bumped into one of my, you know, one of my big gifts pretty early. It, it really informed a lot of my life. How old were you when you when you formed your first band? The very first band would have been, I think, in seventh grade. Back in, in New Jersey in, in nine, let me see, let me see what year would that have been. Seventh grade. That would have been about 1964. Everybody went to dance class. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was a period of time, I think there were like three months in the spring or something, where you would go to dance class. Everybody went to the dance class, and you tripped our way through the waltz and, you know, whatever it was that people were trying to get us to learn, you know, box step and things. It was pretty pretty funny, but uh, they would end it with a, di- with a little dance. And they hired uh, me and a couple of my friends. One kid had, like, a little organ, Parfisa organ, and somebody had a, a guitar and a little amp, and I had a snare drum and a cymbal. No, no bass drum or anything, and, and uh, we did our first gig. That was our first gig. So, 
That's Pretty great. Fun. That's great. So when you were in bands in uh, junior high and high school, were you the drummer? I was for about two years, and then somebody else took over the drums, and I, I was the singing, the lead singing drummer, and for a couple of years, and then I came out from behind the drums and just was the lead singer. Uh, so by the end, I was I was just singing. Were you playing the guitar yeah. as well in the band? Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't remember playing the guitar very much in the band. I didn't have an electric guitar, and I don't think I did play much guitar in the band. I think I just was the lead singer at that point. When you were at home... I was writing songs on on acoustic guitar, and I was singing with an acoustic guitar, but not in the band. So starting at sixth grade, you wrote your first song. What was the name of that song? The song was called Julie. And I had just learned a D major seventh chord, which was a very, now it's, you know, it's not a sound that people would think was so unusual, but back then it was kind of an exotic chord, you know, and, and uh, so instead of a ba-da-da-da-da-da-da, it was a ba-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, and kind of this slinky sound. And I was trying to think, what kind of song would that be? You know, because I was so I so loved the sound that I was playing on this new chord. I said, "You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna write something for this." So I sounded like a love song, and I didn't have a girlfriend. I had a, you know, maybe a girl I was looking at, but that was it. So I did an an, an imitation or imaginary love song to an imaginary girl named Julie. I didn't even know anybody named Julie, so I just liked the way it sounded, and yeah, that was it. My first song. And you wrote other songs as you were going through junior high and high school? Yeah, I don't think I was terribly prolific. Yeah. I remember a couple of songs. Uh, I think after that first song, I messed around with things on the guitar, maybe a little bit, but I didn't write a lot. It wasn't until I got to high school where I started writing more songs again. And and, uh, and then when I got into college, boy, I remember that first year of college, I was in a dormitory at Rutgers University in New Jersey, where the dorms were connected underground with these little tunnels, and there were some rooms down there that had this incredible echo because it was just all brick. And this, I remember this one little room I would go in and I would spend hours singing and writing songs. I mean, I had a nice voice, but with the echo, it just sounded heavenly, so I just... I spent hours down there, and most people didn't go down there, but once in a while somebody would come through and they'd hear me singing and say, wow, what's going on down here? But, yeah. Well, so I did actually did a lot of writing in, that fresh, in my freshman year. And what do you think triggered that? Well, for one thing, there's less structure at that, you know, when you go off to college. So there's more freedom to, to do what, feel, what you feel like doing. I felt like singing, and then I found this incredible space to go, I think it was a fairly emotional time for me. It's interesting. I had always just sort of grooved through school and everything, and then I got away to college, and, and the bigger questions started presenting themselves to me. So I, I was thinking a lot about a lot of different things. Emotions welled up and needed a way to get out, so I... I think I, I really started using songwriting as a, a great way to do that. 
Now, growing up, what was religious life like? Well, I went to Embry Methodist Church in Little Silver, New Jersey. Like I said, it was like four houses down the street. It was a little church that was probably built, I forget, in 18-something, little white clapboard church. My mother was the superintendent of the Sunday school. We went every every day, every Sunday, we went to some Sunday school. You know, back then, I don't know, they would have these little pins that you would oh, yeah. wear, and then if you had perfect attendance, you'd get a little bar that you would attach to the pin. I mean, I had probably five years of little bars, you know. And, <laughs> I, I remember nice. those. <laughs> I, I remember uh, feeling fine there. And then I, my first memory of sort of questioning things a little bit was in fifth grade, I remember asking my Sunday school teacher, what about the Muslim? And I didn't even know where it came from because I didn't really know Muslims. But like, this is a question. You know, what about people who aren't believing the way we're believing? And I remember the discomfort that resulted from the question. In other words, the teacher wasn't very happy to say what they said, but they didn't know what else to say. And basically they said, well, if they don't know about Christ, then it's not their fault. But if they know about Christ, you know, then it's not a good thing for them not to be Christians. Well, now I know that Muslims certainly knew about Christ, and Christ is mentioned you know, in the Quran and, and it's revered and everything. So it, it wasn't a very um, accurate answer, but but what I really remember was the discomfort, because it didn't feel right to the person who was saying it, and it didn't feel right to me either. So that was the first questioning that I did around religion. But, you know, I, I um, go to church and go to Sunday school and then... In high school, we had Methodist Youth, Methodist Youth Fellowship, MYF, and I was involved in that for, for a while. And then when the music really, the band started taking off, it, it seemed to sort of take over. But, but I always thought of myself as, you know, somebody who really believed in God. I didn't think a lot about what it meant for Jesus to be a messenger of God. It was just part of the, of what was the basis of the belief, but that came later. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really thinking about what it means to be a messenger of God and all the implications that go with that. I also remember, I think I won a illustrated Bible book or something when I was little for some, I, I don't know what it was about. Maybe it was perfect attendance. <laughs> <laughs> but those books were were part of my early life. I, I can remember them right now. It's funny, I haven't thought about them in a while. I, I definitely was am grateful that I had a religious upbringing and that there was a context for spirituality. My mom had composed a nightly prayer that we would say every night. And it was really nice. And we, we all said it every night. And then what was really I loved about it was at the end of the prayer, there was an opportunity. We would say, and God bless, and we would list everybody in the family, and then anybody else that we felt needed to be blessed. I remember how comforting it was to be able to list somebody that I felt needed a little extra. That was sweet. So I did grow up with prayer. It wasn't 
like I pray now in the sense that it wasn't something I did all the time. It was just something I did at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, it was something. So you went off to Rutgers University. What was your intention of studying there? Right. It's interesting because I, I, we didn't know anybody who was a musician in our town. I didn't know anyone who was a musician in our town. Uh, ever since fourth grade, or I guess it was fourth grade or fifth grade, when, uh, fourth grade, when we had to do a, a report on what we thought we were going to be when we grew up. And I thought I would be, we'd grow up and be a doctor. And this was before I got heavily into the music, but it sort of stuck with me. And since I didn't know anybody who was a musician, I didn't really think that that was something that was a, an option. I mean, I loved the Beatles and and uh, later on, you know, Mamas and Papas and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and all that stuff. I loved it all, but I didn't think that that was an option, that I could, you know, actually be a professional musician. So I just kept thinking, well, I'll go to school and be a doctor. I was good in science and math and everything. And so I, I applied to Rutgers for pre-med and was accepted, and then... Uh, at the last minute before I, I went for, you know, for the fall semester, I switched to music because it seemed so obvious. So I, I was a music major. So you were still involved in playing out and things like that while you were going to school at Rutgers? Well, by then, um, I left. The drums were left at home because I wasn't really the drummer anymore, but I still had them. They were home. And I just took the guitar the acoustic guitar, and really focused on, on songwriting, and that was what, what it was for me. And I, I did some some gigging. My first solo gig as a songwriter, you know, with my own material, was the summer of my freshman year in college. You know, mostly I was writing songs on the side and, and singing in the glee club and the university choir and doing all those kinds of things. After my sophomore year, I had kind of a rough sophomore year. We, My roommate and I, we got an apartment together in a really bad section of town with a lot of drugs, and we got broken into five times and not, robbed at gunpoint and knife point, and the car was stolen. You know, it was just... And then at the end of that sophomore year, my roommate had a, had a breakdown. So I said, get me out of here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> get me out of here. So I transferred to a little school in Wisconsin called Beloit College. And that's really where I discovered the Baha'i faith. I had not heard of it until then. So I was standing in registration line, mm-hmm. didn't know anybody, and the people in front of me were a bunch of Baha'is, and kids had come back from summer vacation, and so I got into a discussion with them. So how is it that you even chose Benoit College, of all places, in Wisconsin? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you don't really know how those things transpire. There wasn't anything really logical about it. I uh, I had a girlfriend in high school who, when we went off to college, the, her brother, who was a year younger than her, went to Beloit College. In my sophomore year, he was going as a freshman to Beloit, and so... I remember talking to this ex-girlfriend of mine, and she was talking about her brother and how much he liked the school, and it was a small school, but a really good one. It was a good school. And uh, and then I had a friend who was in, in uh, Wisconsin for the summer babysitting, 
And so she said, well, come visit, you know. So I went to visit and visited Bullock College, and, I mean, it didn't make a lot of sense, but something drew me there. At this point, I look back on those kinds of whimsical decisions that are life-changing, and, you know, I think uh, we may get some guidance on those things. Something told me to go there. It changed my life. So tell me about that conversation you had with those Baha'is in line. Well, it's funny, and just to give a little background of where I was in my own mind religiously at that point, I certainly had not turned my back on my Christian upbringing, but I was interested in what else was out there. So I looked into the Buddhist writings, studying some yoga, and and even, you know, the Hare Krishnas came to the, on campus, and they said, you know, if you want to come over to the Hare Krishna Temple in, in New York City on Sunday, there'll be a bus here, and you can go over. And So I, I went. I went, and I... Uh, this is when I was at Rutgers, you know, I, I went over and, you know, it was interesting. It wasn't anything that was compelling to me enough to do anything drastic, but it was a nice energy and sweet people. And so I was in an inquisitive place, but I also was, I was, I was fairly disappointed in the world that I was in at that point. By the time I got to Beloit College, there were people on campus who were, trying to organize protests against the dumping of chemical waste and nuclear waste in the ocean off the coast of New York and New Jersey. <laughs> and that was, just broke my heart to think that that stuff was going on. So I was in a place that was disappointed mm. and kind of hurt by the world that was around me, and I had a rough year before. So there I was standing in, a, in registration line. I didn't know a soul at the, at the White College. These kids were talking about where they'd been that summer. One of the kids had been to a Baha'i conference in Palermo, Italy, and somebody else had been somewhere else, and they were, you know, carrying on. I was just sort of over overhearing. I didn't have anything else to do. So I was just sort of eavesdropping. And they noticed I was eavesdropping, and they said, oh, well, have you ever heard of the Baha'i faith? And I said, I sort of recoiled a little bit. <laughs> and I said, no. And uh, and they said, well, would you like, you know, we could tell you a little about it. And I said, oh, all right, a little, maybe a little bit, you know. So they sort of outlined, you know, the founded by Baha'u'llah and the major teachings were the oneness of God, the oneness of religion, and the oneness of humanity. And, and then they invited me to some meeting. I said, you know, I've sort of been studying, looking into other religions for a while. I'm taking a little break. <laughs> and sort of thought, and it wasn't that I wasn't interested. It was just that I felt very vulnerable. I guess I sort of sort of backed out of the conversation. It was a very small campus. You know, there were sixteen hundred kids on campus. There were at that time probably twenty Baha'i youth going to Beloit College. Wow! So they disproportionate. Were and and they knew who I was, and, and I knew who they were, and, you know, we'd bump into each other. They'd invite me to things, and the cafeteria did not serve dinner on Sunday evening. So you said, I had to fend for yourself. So this wonderful uh, Baha'i couple who lived in Beloit off-campus, they weren't related to the campus at all, would have some kind of soup or something. They'd throw, so whatever was in the house, they'd put it in a pot, and everybody would eat it. 
So I started going to those because, you know, there wasn't any dinner anyway. <laughs> we would sit around and read the Baha'i writings and talk about it. And I liked it. I liked the people. Uh, I remember reading from this wonderful book by Shoghi Effendi, The Advent of Divine Justice. Shoghi Effendi being the grandson, great-grandson of Baha'u'llah. I remember reading a passage about racism and what the white people needed to do to get past racism and what the black people needed to do to get past racism. It was very thoughtful and direct and profound. I remember being really moved by the cogency of, of the statement, you know, very, very articulate statement about uh, the, the reality of it. I remember, you know, that it, it said that white members of the human race had to overcome their inherent superiority and that the black members of the human race had to overcome their distrust of the white. Those were the kinds of discussions we were having, and it was very exciting. Uh, very exciting to me. And I remember one of the Baha'is kept asking me to this Baha'i conference that they would hold in central Wisconsin. At the time, it was in the fall. Now it's, I think, at the end of the summer, but the Green Lake Conference. And she kept asking me if I wanted to go, and I said, I don't think so. And I think, you know, she asked me a couple of times, and I gosh, you know, she's really, you know, a little much. You know, one day she <laughs> handed me a invitation, you know, and I like a, like a registration form, and I said, Ugh. So I put it on my desk, you know, and forgot about it. And then a couple weeks later, I'm doing my homework on a Sunday afternoon, and I'm, I see this invitation, I mean, this uh, registration form, and it's central Wisconsin, I've never been there. I needed to get away, and I said, ah, oh, maybe I'll go. So I registered, and then I went up, I know, and I, and I, I Asked some of the Baha'is like a couple of days before. I said, "Can I get a ride?" You know, they were very excited that I was going. You know, they took me up and we got there, and Baha'is were all hugging each other. You know, and I, I didn't know anybody, and I'm going, "Oh, geez, what did I do?" <laughs> 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 and you know, there it was the first night. Then you know, we, the next morning, the next afternoon, there was a woman giving a talk, and she said, "You know, I know you're probably sitting with people you know." I want you to get to know the person three people away from you on either side. This might be somebody you don't know. So, you know, let's get to know each other. So I kind of put up my wall of, you know, armor against whatever's going to happen, and I turn to the left, and I say, hi. I'm, you know, and as before I could even turn around, this big African-American woman grabbed me from behind before I could even get my defenses up, and she said, I'm your other third person, you know, and I, she just got me. She caught me unaware, you know. I mean, I was I didn't have my defenses up for that side, and, and I just melted. The rest of that conference was really special, really transforming. So I came home from that conference. Nobody wanted to go back into real time because the conference was so magnificent, so beautiful, and... We were just swimming in the wonderful teachings of Baha'u'llah, and I came back to this house where they would always have these Sunday dinners. We all had kind of an after-conference 
little gathering, and I just felt the need to go off into one of the little rooms in, in the dark, and I just sat there in the dark, and I said, I don't know. I've never really thought about how astonishing an idea it is that God would pick someone in human form to represent him. And what I said to myself at that point was, you know, because I've been hanging with the Baha'is for a while, I really saw something special there. And I had read a bunch of the Baha'i writings. And and, uh, I said, well, I don't know if if God actually does that, but if he does, Baha'u'llah is one of them. That I know. That was the best I could do. <laughs> and so I became a Baha'i. I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and see what it is. I like it. feels good. feels right. I don't know what, how this all works, but I'm going to try it. See. Let me see. That was 1972. Good heavens. <laughs> We're 38 years later. <laughs> and uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. This experience of discovery of the Baha'i faith, did it translate into any song? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. You know, one of the things that Baha'u'llah says is that we're supposed to read the Holy Writings every morning and every evening. I've tried to do that throughout my Baha'i life. That's a lot of evenings and mornings. (laughs) And, you know, if you look at great writers... Gosh, in the Western world, the Bible has informed so much literature and music. It would be odd if, it, if a new revelation didn't have the same effect. You know, if the new writing from a new message from God didn't do the same thing. And, and we have so much wonderful, wonderful scripture, so many different kinds of forms short little sayings like the hidden words or longer passages like whole books on a theme that Baha'u'llah wrote. And uh, they're just filled with, with incredible metaphors. It's just incredibly rich. So once, you know, fast forward now from 1972 to 1983, 11 years later, I'm married and I have a young son. And my wife, Kathy, and I are writing songs around the house for, for days. And they're kind of good. So we make a little recording and, you know, just fun little songs for kids. People liked it a lot. So we, we did another one. And the second one we did was called Teaching Peace. It was largely inspired by a statement from the Baha'i International Community where they was talking about the things that stood in between humanity and and world peace. Because in the Baha'i writings, we, we're told that it's not something that's possible, it's something that's inevitable, it's going to happen. And that it's one of the benefits of having a new revelation from God, is that we're actually going to understand the oneness of humanity and, and finally get past this incessant war that has plagued humanity ever since inception. So we went through this wonderful statement and and picked out some of the points that were in there and and tried to write songs for kids about them. And they came out really charming and fun and interactive, but they had a lot of meat to them. So 
that became a classic children's recording. The All Music Guide is calls it one of the top five children's recordings of all time and won Town's Choice Classic Award. And, you know, it was a wonderful thing to to have as part of my my career. And um, so children's music became my my area of uh, musical endeavor. And what my wife Kathy and I, we've written most of the songs together, we discovered that we'd be trying to write a song about something and a relevant high quote would just sort of come into our minds from all those nights and all those mornings of reading from mm-hmm. the by writing. So when we were trying to write a song about the equality of men and women, we were stumped because it's not so easy to write a simple song for children about a complex topic like that. Uh, we didn't know how to address limiting the opportunities of women based on the belief that they're inferior or, or that they should be doing other things. It's just a, it's a, it can get complicated. And I remember it was the last song we wrote, but we really knew it was an important one. And then it hit me. I said, oh, wait. Abdu'l-Bahá says, humanity is like a bird with two wings. One is male, one is female. If one wing is not given the opportunity to develop the same strengths and capacities and capabilities as the other, the bird will be crippled, won't be able to fly. So we wrote our song, With Two Wings. With two wings, we can soar through the air. With two wings, we can go most anywhere. With two wings, we can sail through the sky. With two wings, we can fly. With two wings, we can soar through the air. With two wings, we can go most anywhere. With two wings, we can sail through the sky. With two All I can do is flutter I'm only one wing I need the other For the dove of peace to fly I am one wing sister and brother By myself all I can do is flutter I'm only one wing I need the other For the dove of peace to fly With two wings We can soar through the air With two wings We can go most anywhere Then the dove of peace will fly With two wings We can soar through the air With two wings We can go most anywhere With two wings We can sail through the sky With two wings We can fly With two wings We can soar through the air with 
With two wings we can sail through the sky. With two wings we can fly. With two wings we can soar through the air. With two wings we can go. And it's a very simple song, but because we have the right metaphor, it was very workable. So when you ask if becoming a Baha'i affected future musical endeavor, definitely. Yeah. And there was one area, one other area that was really important about becoming a Baha'i, where Baha'u'llah's son, Abdul Baha, wrote uh, and talked, gave talks extensively. And in one of the talks, he refers to music as the ladder for the soul. And at the end of that passage, he says about music, make it not a plaything of the ignorant. He really creates a standard for the, po- for the use of the power that's in music. As a young 19-year-old starting his musical career, I knew that I didn't want to do music that was stupid. <laughs> I didn't want to do music that took people somewhere lower. I wanted to take them up somewhere. That was the challenge that was sort of set in front of me by the Baha'i writings early on. And it, and it was a very high standard to try and aspire to. And I'm so glad that I had that at the beginning of my career so that I didn't waste my time doing some music that I wasn't, wouldn't be proud of later. It really has had a huge effect on my work. Did you have any recordings between 1972 and 1983? After college, I did some solo demo things, and, and I had a duo with another musician, and we did a little recording, but nothing, nothing serious. And then my wife, Kathy, and I moved to California in 1978, and a couple of years later, 1980, the folk group from the late 50s and early 60s, the Limelighters, were looking for a replacement for Glenn Yarbrough, who had been the lead singer. They heard heard about me and my tenor voice, and they uh, sought me out and said, we'd like to try you out for that position. And so uh, they hired me on, and for eight years, uh, that would have been 1980, so for eight years I worked with them, and we did, you know, numerous recordings. But for the most part, they weren't songs. There was only one song of mine that I'd written that was on any of those recordings. And I knew that that wasn't what I was going to do for my career, but it was, you know, a good job, and I learned a lot about touring and recording and got my feet wet, and I'm very grateful to the Lou Gottlieb and Alex Hasselhoff taking me under their wing. Yeah, those were the only recordings. And then 1983, we did our first children's recording. My kids grew up on your music. Yeah. Yeah, and one of my favorite songs is the song called Listen. Which album is that one on? That's on Teaching Peace. I remember exactly where I was when that song came out. And most songs take some time to write, and you refine them, and you you know, do draft after draft, you know, till you get it to where you want it to be. That song just came out. 
I remember I was in Alex Hasselev's downstairs studio. We weren't recording. We were just rehearsing, and I don't know, maybe we're, I was waiting for... We weren't, you know, we were supposed to be rehearsing, but for some reason we weren't, and I was down in this thing by myself, and and that song came out. Yeah, funny how, mm, how that works right. sometimes. And I didn't change a word. I mean, it was like verse one, verse two, verse three, boom. Listen, can you hear the sound? Hearts beating all the world around Down in the valley, out on the plain Everywhere around the world a heartbeat sounds the same Black or white, red or tan It's the heart of the family of Can you hear the sound of laughter all the world around? High in the mountains, down by the sea, everywhere around the world, laughter sounds the same to me. Black or white, red or tan, it's the sound of the
And then I yeah. guess you've sort of transitioned from children's music to more of a general genre with free falling, right? Is that your departure, or would you say differently? No, no, no. Actually, it was. I would say that to this day, my main area of musical engagement is family music. But I'm a songwriter who does lots of different kinds of music, and so I think that was 93 when I finally said, you know what, I need to do do an album of these adult songs that I've written. And some of the ones on that particular album were inspired by some of the personal work that I was doing in, inside. I think one of the things is we grow into adulthood and we start noticing that we have some walls up in, inside of ourselves and you keep hitting the wall and hitting the wall and you say, I want to get on the other side of that wall. And so you have to do some work around what you're carrying around, you know, the baggage you're bringing. So that was around the time where I did a lot of that, some of that work and, and uh, maybe that was part of the the impetus to actually get a a solo adult album out. Yeah, it was a powerful experience. You know, right after that, I did my uh, fourth children's album, and then after that, my fifth children's album, you know, so, and then then another adult album, Soul Man in a Techno World. So I think I'm an adult, so I also write adult songs, and it's this time when you feel like you really need to do that. used to think I knew Everything I needed to I know how crazy it sounds Thank God he led me around To where I took a mighty step Left all I was sure of Walked off a ledge sight unseen With no idea of where it was leading And now I'm free Took my step faithfully 
took it like I knew exactly where I was going, but it is surely new for me, and here I am in panic, and here I am. It was probably about five or six years ago you put out "Bebop Your Best," right? Which was an award an award winning CD. Yeah, I was Grammy nominated. You know, the people in the industry voted to make it one of the five nominees for the top children's recording. For, uh, I think it was two thousand five. Yeah, and then. There's one song that you wrote that just always touches my heart, and I play it a lot on my program, by the way, and that is A Strangely Wrapped Gift. It's mm, it's, yeah. a, it's one of my favorite, yeah. and I was wondering if you could tell me what inspired you to write that song. You know, that is one of my favorite songs uh, that comes out. You know, the whole songwriting process is is very mysterious and interesting. You think after all this time, I know how it works, but it's, <laughs> it's I've always known that the songwriting process is too serendipitous for it to be simply coming out of my mind. You know, you'll be working hard on something, and then all of a sudden, this this idea will come out of left field that just perfectly fits what you're trying to do. And so I, I really do think we get assistance from the other side, from those holy souls that have gone on. That's what Baha'u'llah says. You know, mm-hmm. the, the holy souls go on to the next world, and they inspire the arts and the science discoveries and, and uh, so on. So that particular song, I, it was kind of funny. I, 
showed up at the school to do a school concert in northern New York, near Syracuse. And I get to the school, and I go in the back door, and there's nobody there. And it's regular school hours. And I check the contract, and it says, I'm supposed to be doing a concert in an hour. <laughs> I'm ready to set up. <laughs> so I wandered. It was a big school. I wandered down the hall, not a sound. You know, not a child anywhere. So I get to the front of the building, and I start hearing voices. So I follow the voices, and everybody's in the teacher's lounge eating pizza. The teachers. And I walk in, I go, what's going on? Hey! <laughs> and they go, oh, guess what? The water main broke. We had to send everybody home. So I said, okay. So I said, have some pizza. So I got a slice of pizza, and I got a plastic cup with some, some Coke, in it, you know, and I'm standing there eating, and I turn to the person next to me, and I say, how are you today? And she says, not so good. I said, really? She said, yeah, this is the first anniversary of my husband walking out on me. So we put the, put the pizza and the Coke down, and we sat down, and we just chatted for a while. And she said, this has been the hardest year of my life. I lost myself in my relationship with my ex-husband. So when he left, there was nothing. And it was unexpected. And I was terrified, and I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what to do. And she said, I just, you know, I sat there in my house for a while just trying to make sense of what I was going to do next. She said, the funny thing is, it's a year has gone by, and I'm so glad he left. But it's really odd. But it was the hardest year of my life, but I'm so glad that it happened because I rediscovered who I was. And I was in a really unhealthy situation, and I, and I was freed from it, and I had to stand up for myself. And I looked at her, and I said, strangely wrapped gift. And she looked kind of funny at me. <laughs> And that was the end of the conversation. You know, we didn't do the concert because there weren't any kids. And I, I left the, the building knowing that that was a really great song title. And the problem with a really great song title is you have to write a really great song or else you feel stupid. It feels like a, a, a wasted gem. If you So I, I didn't approach the song for a long time. I didn't know how to do it. Then one day I said, you know, I love that song title, I have to do it. And I just started trying to write the song, and the song came out. And I know there isn't a direct quote from one of Baha'u'llah's hidden words, but the spirit of the song is, is definitely uh, inspired by one of Baha'u'llah's hidden words, where he says, Says, oh, son of man, my calamity is my providence. Outwardly, it is fire and vengeance. But inwardly, it is light and mercy. Hasten thereunto, that thou mayest become an eternal light and an immortal spirit. That's what I want to be. The thought that life is not a Disney movie. Each episode does not necessarily have what to outward seeming is a happy ending. We are faced with tests 
and difficulties that shake us and challenge us right to the core, but that if we are on a spiritual path, they always move us forward. They always inform us. And that's what the woman was saying. Hasten thereunto that thou mayest become an eternal light and an immortal spirit. Outwardly it is fire and vengeance. Inwardly it is light and mercy. And she certainly would have agreed with that. Uh, it is one of my favorite pieces. Mine too. It captures that yeah. kind of nicely. such a long time When she looked inside herself she wasn't sure what she'd find She had to open the door a little wider now She had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow She walked into the fire Alone and scared stiff Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get worn Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with Jamie's just a strangely wrapped gift what is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire Do we burn or do we glow? doorstep looks sad and forlorn The wrapping paper's faded, it's all tattered and torn For a moment I wonder what on earth it might be Till I see the tag and realize it 
It's made out to me It's gonna open the door a little wider now It's gonna lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Sent me a strangely bad gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really loves me Someone who loves me Send me a strangely bad So, Red, if people want to know more about your music and what you're doing, do you have a website they can go to? Sure, www.redgrammar.com. That's G-R-A-M-M-E-R. And, you know, you can go other places, too. You just type in Red Grammar. It'll come up a bunch of of different locations. Well, Red, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to tell me your story. Yeah, it was a delight. delight. Nice to be able to share where things come from. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Red Grammer, a professional musician who has released award-winning CDs such as his classic recording teaching piece. Red's website is redgrammer.com. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.